0: Welcome to Connect with Success with Dr. Lynette skatis where we help connect you with knowledge. Our mission is to lead you to a new and exciting way of understanding, responding to, and helping all those with autism. We hope to expand your thinking about how to best serve these amazing people and how to support you in your daily struggles and celebrations.
1: Welcome everyone to the fifth episode of Connect with Success, a podcast built around the success approach and the person who coined it, Dr. Lynette Scotty's Watilla. Today's episode is very special because we're going to be presenting in the first of many sessions called Successful Synthesis Sessions. In these synthesis sessions, we will provide a review of key ideas covered in the last three or four episodes uh, that will help you kind of integrate or synthesize the information into something useful in a particular situation. So Lynette, what are some of the ideas that we're going to be revisiting today?
0: Um, Some of the ideas from episode one through four, and that will include... Transdisciplinary care and how we use it in the success approach to really get to the meat of that neurodevelopmental model. And then from episode two, we're going to revisit readiness, very important topic, and how we identify readiness in the child or the adult and what it looks like. And from three, we're going to revisit the idea of sense making and how human beings move through this really cool cycle that allows us to make meaningful contact with people, places, and things. And the last thing we're going to try to layer on here is the idea of the sensory systems and how efficient or proper sensory processing really allows us to function and thrive in the world. But when sensory issues plague some of our kiddos, they limit those children's ability to be adaptive and function within the world.
1: Great. And this is a, a wonderful way to kind of recap some of the greatest hits of the last three or four episodes. So make sure you guys stick around as we head into today's message. Welcome back to uh, the segment called The Message here with Connect with Success. And we're going to jump right in to the pool uh, and talk about the first episode, which was about building your team and how important it is to build a team around uh your your individual with autism. So Lynette, what would you say were some of the key points from episode one as we talk about building that team?
0: Yeah, definitely the idea of transdisciplinary care, which kind of equates to a full team. And don't forget, it must 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 include our wonderful parents and family. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people, these professionals and family together work to assess, plan for, and then treat and teach the child, which creates this unique web of support to fully facilitate the child's progress. And so we would say that this good team approach sort of um, results in listing the ingredients. Like if we're going to make a cake, it kind of lists the ingredients that we're going to need to bake the just right cake and how much of what you need.
1: So we really have to identify the the key points to making a good cake, you know, in, in this analogy. Yep. And so we can't miss anything. So it really does take that village approach in the t- transdisciplinary care.
0: That's approach. right. And when you have those ingredients in, as defined by the team, what we want to do next in a transdisciplinary model is cross-train and roll release. So that's going to ensure proper blending or synthesizing of those ingredients. So this blending isn't entirely easy. It, it does take a lot of work. Um, and while the success approach, again, I will emphasize, can beautifully be applied and effective for all children and adults with special needs, especially those with autism, because that's what it was designed for, it's a little harder to say that about the adults who are actually providing services. And the reason is because not every adult has that orientation. Not every adult or family member even has that capacity to really collaborate. And it's because it takes specific skills. So in 2001, I was asked to co author a chapter in a book that the American Occupational Therapy Association published. One of the things really important about this book and this particular chapter was that it really highlighted the difference between transdisciplinary care and other models and some of the skill sets that a team member would need to have to be a really good transdisciplinarian. And I just wanted to read that entry so we have an understanding of some of the skill sets, you can say. Mm -hmm. So some of the interpersonal skills that it takes to have successful collaboration as a transdisciplinarian include effective communication like active listening, requesting clarification, providing clarification, and expressing knowledge simply. It also requires professional understanding and really knowing your own trade, knowing those theories, knowing those frameworks, and knowing informational assessment and methods. You have to really understand your own trade and the therapeutic interventions that are known to it so that you can bring those unique methods or treatment from your field to someone else who isn't so familiar with them. Another thing that you really have to have to be an effective collaborator is really good clinical reasoning and problem solving. And you have to want to share what you know so that the child can receive that method kind of across settings or across people as long as it's conducive to that kind of role-releasing. And some methods are not. Some methods are very specific to your field. Um, a special teacher would never want me to assess a child (laughs) (laughs) with an IQ test, because I don't know anything about IQ tests and how to render them. Um, And in the same way, um, a a special teacher would probably never want to do a therapeutic brushing program for a child or work with a child on a swing uh, to integrate the sense of balance. and nor would it be appropriate. So we really want to understand our boundaries and our and our lines that we have to work within, but find those that are transferable and cross train and real release.
1: And it really speaks to um, building a team that you can trust. Yes, it really and and having that communication because I I can come from the parent perspective and and feeling just broken and in, in some places where I didn't have people that I fully trusted, with providing me a, a diagnosis or prov- providing me with some insight as to how my child might be feeling mm-hmm. to be able to relate to that. And so building that, that team of people that you can trust really comes through loud and clear in that communication.
0: Mm-hmm. And so probably a final key point to this transdisciplinary care that we talked about in episode one um, is really related to neurodevelopment. So for kids with autism and other special needs, Um, we really want that team that we put together to be very grounded in that all-powerful, bottom-up approach, Um, what I called in Episode 1 a neurodevelopmental model. Um, And then if we do that, if we ground ourselves in neurodevelopment, the individual's brain and body gets treated better and and faster than if the team were to adopt um, the more maybe readily available top-down approach. Um, afforded through other intervention models that parents, say, sort of drive the product or drill the skill into the child. And again, in using the success approach principles for literally a quarter of a century now here at Integrations Treatment Center, we have found that the far superior alternative to a top-down approach or a drill-the-skill kind of approach is one that strategically elicits the child's ability to process and master the baby steps of the skill and thus arrive at the product or produce the skill such that the skill is acquired naturally and normally. Um, And then it's going to generalize and it's going to stick. So it's far superior.
1: And I love this idea of forming the team around the whole. So it starts with the basics of knowing who's on your bench and knowing who can, can perform what skills to help bring a holistic approach to your child with autism. And what really speaks to what you've said over and over again, you have to reach and then teach the child. And I think that That's brings right. us to the next topic in episode two, which is readiness.
0: That's right. So some of the key points that we want to revisit from episode two about readiness so readiness is an observable state wherein the child is adequately prepared to meet the demands of the environment. So basically, they are ready to function and respond to what's going on around them. Another key point is that readiness is something foundational to every human being. And it's dynamic, so it's going to fluctuate. Um, it comes and goes. Um, you know, We are here in Cleveland. We have the wonderful... Cleveland Opera and the Cleveland Orchestra, and if we're in some of those venues and we can sit and attend, we are able to do that, but if our bladder is full and nature is starting to call to us, we're not going to be ready to listen to the rest of that performance. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads me to say that readiness and skill are not the same thing, but readiness can and does impact the performance of a skill, Um, our ability to initiate or ability to complete a particular skill. They are definitely related. Another key thing that we talked about in episode two was that readiness can be assessed. And this is where parents really have the power. They're really empowered to know this. You can know when your child is ready. And the way that you do that, if you remember back to episode two, was to look at their eyes and notice where they're directed. Notice their body movement and or position or alignment relative to you or what it is you're trying to introduce and listen to their voice. So this little mental checklist that we talk about is really a nice little list for parents to say, is my child ready? Let me look at these factors, eyes, body, voice. Nope, you know what, he's scripting. He is, his mind is somewhere else. It's on a, a, a memory that isn't about the here and now and he's scripting something from Snoopy that he saw. Okay, so I'm not going to introduce him to this task right now. I'm not going to expect him to perform right now because his mind is somewhere else. But what I can do is move myself into his vision and hold something at his eye level that I want him to engage to. Because as he's scripting Snoopy's Halloween episode or something that's salient to him from the past you, through his sensory systems, are going to bring something that's more salient. And eventually, the eyes are going to win out, especially if you jingle whatever it is that you're giving him or you're showing him. So you kind of interrupt that process, and you can get his eyes back on you, mm-hmm. and his voice will not script anymore. So these are the tools you, that you need.
1: In episode two, you use that analogy of Rain Man. Yes. And that scene with the necklace. Yeah. And so it's the same same situation here. So make sure you head back to episode two uh, if you missed that analogy. Mm-hmm. And so and that leads us to episode three, which we talked about sense making. Um, and, and where we can layer in how once we've processed what's going on, moving to that next step of trying to make sense of it all. And again, this is another natural Human reaction, it's just a matter of how someone with autism might process it.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you actually said the word layering, Dr. Smith. Good word (laughs) choice. (laughs) Um, Because I want to sort of address that idea. So, as many of you are starting to kind of understand here in episode five, um, in the success approach, ideas or theories build on each other and connect or complement the others. Similar to the way that we sort of lay the foundation uh, for a house or a structure that you're building. Um, We go from the ground up, right, and we're adding each unique layer of support that culminates in this perfect structure that serves to contain and support our needs Um, and basically to help us thrive. So when it comes to building a foundation for our kids, we first need that good team Mm -hmm. that agrees to operate from that neurodevelopmental model so we can discern those ingredients And then use one of those core ingredients, which is the adult's ability and and effectiveness of being good at reading readiness, so that when we're presenting these things, the child has maximum benefit to actually take in and make sense of what it is that we're offering to them or that we're wanting them to attend to. And so when we think about those two things being in place, the full team, neurodevelopment, and boom, readiness assessment, now it's about how we're going to have the child learn in our presence, how we're going to be impactful on the child.
1: In education, they call that scaffolding. Ah. Yeah, they call that. And, and, and actually, the online training program for the success approach is based on a scaffolding model. So we, right. we start with step one, work our way up, and if for some reason you can't make it past level two or three, you come back to where the misunderstanding was at. That's right. And then start to build over again from That's there.
0: Right. It's going back in time and redoing the baby steps so you're a solid structure is the outcome of your efforts. And that's just like therapy as well, Rich. I'm glad that you bring up the idea of scaffolding. And in this case, on how our class, one theory builds on the next. So the parent or the teacher, whoever takes the class, has the beautiful advantage of evolving to a solid plan. You know, nothing happens fast if it's done well. Right. <laughs> so you really have to build slowly. And the more theories and methods you learn, the more you can kind of stack your deck or build your house for that child. And when everyone's doing the same thing, guess who benefits?
1: Exactly. And
0: guess who progresses fast, right? Mm-hmm. So in this um, episode three, you might have heard me talk a lot about sense making. So sense making is basically the same thing as comprehension or learning. And sense making is the outcome of a process. So it's an end product. And it's the centerpiece of one of the concepts unique to Gestalt theory that's from the field of psychology. And Gestalt theory is truly one of the key theories of the success approach that makes it work so well. I mean, it is the secret sauce in my mind. (laughs) Um, And Gestalt theory actually is the hallmark theory of my doctoral research. And so I spend a lot of time and intimate research on Gestalt theory. And um, what's so cool about it is that it provides us the schematic, the circular schematic um, that was created and recreated by many Gestalt theorists over time that help us conceptualize a circular process through which our brains travel as we experience sense-making. And this circular process starts with none other than sensation. And... um, It moves then through other various cycle parts and kind of comes to contact. So there's steps I'm leaving out in between, but we go from uh, experiencing sensation to moving through the cycle and making contact and therefore understanding or wrapping our brain around whatever it is that we came in contact with. Um, and it's kind of an automatic process. We don't often talk about it, but it is part of my research. So I wanted to read something from my um, doctoral capstone that I think would be helpful to kind of explain what some of the theorists talk about or what they mean by the circular process that results in sense-making. So this is a quote from my um, capstone project. According to Gestalt theory, to achieve proper sense-making, one must go through several steps of the Gestalt Cycle of Experience without getting stuck. This is based on one of the schematics by Zinker in mm-hmm. 1977. Normal movement through the Gestalt Cycle of Experience begins at the top of the schematic. Again, this is a circular schematic, starting with sensation. And in sensation, individuals take in a multitude of sensory input or impulses derived from both themselves and from the environment. Once that happens, the person moves through a few steps in the circular process, very well known to Gestalt theorists, and they arrive at contact. And contact is a flexible and meaningful connection of the self with or to the environment, things, or people. So when contact is successful, meaning is made, resulting in concept formation or an idea or ideation.
1: And so we all go through this and relating those experiences to any past or previous life experiences that we've gone through and how we bring it back to making sense of things going forward.
0: That's right. And what's so exciting about this idea is we're figuring out not just what the world's all about and what we're about, but the relationship between all those things. So when a baby is thirsty... Um, And over and over and over again, the mommy introduces a bottle or a sippy cup eventually. They associate relief with that cup. So thirst is tied to, and quenching of the thirst is tied to, this source. And that can only happen because the child eventually, or I should say the child initially, experienced the sensation and therefore needed something the mother responded to and came in contact with the quench and the baby's not seeking out a hammer that's not the association for thirst it's very distinctly a fluid source and so it's very natural it happens thousands and thousands and thousands of times a day i'm quite sure most of us Um, but for kids on the spectrum like we talked about in episode three they get stuck they get stuck somewhere on the cycle And so they don't perceive the bottle or they don't detect the thirst. Mm -hmm. These are the things that plague families and really make us wonder how to help children on the spectrum to actually make contact with and therefore derive meaning from their world. And then the last episode that we presented with um, Ellen Winnie, occupational therapist par excellence, (laughs) um, was the topic of sensory integration and some of the key things for sensory integration are, again, sort of understanding this process, this uh, subconscious, subcortical, quite literally, subcortical process that kind of happens at the brainstem, you know, the primitive parts of the brain, mm-hmm. where information comes into the sensory system and gets processed and interpreted and sort of utilized for function. Um, and we kind of talk about it as almost a reflexive sort of thing mm-hmm. because it is brain stemmy, so to speak. Right. Um, we're not thinking about um, that accidental scratchy sound at the window at night and consciously putting meaning to it. It's a quick reaction. Is that a robber or is that a raccoon? And
1: you know, some it's fast. Right. And some of them really do get stuck in that processing piece mm-hmm. um, and, and trying to assess their in environments all around them. Mm-hmm. And us unwillingly doing things could just be kind of pushing them into that loop.
0: That's right. And it's stuff that we don't even realize. So when we're talking about the sensory systems, another key point is these children don't often inhibit. They can't turn off or turn down the sensory impulses and so or the sensory perception. And so it might be that something that we perceive every day, like uh, the humming of a refrigerator, that is quite background noise for us, is unfortunately salient for that child. And that's what's in their consciousness. Mm-hmm. They can't suppress it or they can't inhibit it. And it's because the autism affects the sensory processing. That's a really important part of the DSM-5 now, that there's sensory symptoms that can go along with the disorder. And that helps diagnosticians to make the right call.
1: I mean, we see it a lot in um, our students in classrooms. Um, We see it with our own children um, as we're going through, just this overstimulation, this constant overstimulation, and it's them trying to make sense of everything all at once.
0: That's right. And sometimes it's the opposite. It's under-processing. So, you know, lights on, nobody home kind of thing. When you look at your child, they're not quite perceiving that there's a fire alarm. Mm -hmm. They're not quite perceiving that there's an ant crawling on them. They're not perceiving that there's the smell of dinner being ready. And so they're not getting cues from the environment like the rest of us, and therefore their behavior is is re- reflecting that.
1: And you bring up a good point about the behavior, because sometimes in order for them to, um, their co- a coping mes- mechanism might be something verbally not acceptable in a particular public setting, and it's just misconstrued as misbehavior, but it's really this them trying to cope with That's right. that overload.
0: That's right. Oftentimes, it looks disruptive to the naked eye. So if a child is irritated by the tag in their shirt, they may have to pace to tolerate or cope with that load, that tactile load. Well, that looks like maybe to a teacher or to a principal or to a nanny or to a grandma or to a bus driver or somebody that the child's disengaged or worse yet, being disrespectful, mm-hmm. that it becomes sort of this uh, attribute this personality type, and not at all is the child disrespectful.
1: Labeled as defiant.
0: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so these adjectives come into our um, description of these kids that really are couldn't be any farther from the truth, which is kind of sad and I think takes a toll on parents. You know, parents see the beauty, and parents see the um, uniqueness and the strengths in their child and the beauty, really, again. And when you hear some of these terms, it's like, wow, that, I, don't, I don't consider my kid aloof. Mm-hmm. Like, what is everyone seeing? Or defiant, I mm-hmm. don't see that. You know, I seem troubled. I seem distracted. I see his nervous system on fire. You know, those are very different ways of describing a child than deliberate or class clown or something else more negative.
1: Yeah, just helping them process those expectations in that environment because we're, um, we want them to act a particular way. It's really them trying to make sense of, of uh, their environment because in, in these institutions, they expect behavior in a certain way but it may not be clear for the person on the spectrum to to operate that way.
0: That's right. Even things like clapping. You mm-hmm. know, that's kind of a given norm when you're at a performance in a group, large or small, and something is completed on stage, for instance. The, the audience usually responds with a clap or, you know, an applause. And um, that is sometimes not as tolerable to someone who has sound sensitivity. Um, and I know people on the spectrum who, instead of applauding as when they speak, for instance, this happens a lot at the Autism Society of America's conferences um, that we frequent and, and are often lecturing at. Um, they will have the person with autism um, identify early on for their audience as they speak that instead of clapping, they would appreciate standing mm. or even clicking, you know, to show that they um, appreciate the information shared.
1: To soften that auditory Queue that might be triggering
0: yep but to meet that social expectation right. of gratitude at the end of a nice presentation
1: wow what a great tip there mm-hmm.
0: so our challenge for this episode uh, today listeners i invite you all to revisit your own ability and your team's ability to do three things one to assess and facilitate your child's readiness. Two, to support his or her ability to really connect and make meaning from people, places, and events around him. Three, to define what sensory supports your child may need most to function and stay adaptive. And maybe identify one way that you can be an extension of your child's OT to provide that sensory input.
1: As we wrap up this first successful synthesis session, and we will have many more as our goal is to give you a recap of what we talk about on this podcast every five episodes or so to give us a time to process the the success approach. Uh, and how it can impact our lives in the community of autism. And we've really only begun to scratch the surface of that, right, Lynette?
0: Absolutely. Much more to come.
1: What are some of the takeaways from this episode?
0: Uh, Well, be a team player who respects how the brain drives human development. Help your child get ready for making sense of his world and be sure he has proper contact with the idea he is learning so the concept is learned naturally and normally. Be an advocate for your child's sensory needs so she can be her best version of herself at all times. And above everything, expect success. We hope that you learned something today to help you on your journey with autism. We'll share more on our next Connect with Success podcast. Until then, expect success.
1: The Success Approach is a registered service mark protected under intellectual property law. Unless otherwise specified, all music, audiovisual, and proprietary content shared in this podcast is property of Autism Productions LLC and its sister agency Integrations Treatment Center. The use of this content is unlawful without the expressed written consent of aforementioned agency. For more information about The Success Approach, please go to our website at www.thesuccessapproach.org.